Ajahn Chah once said, um, a religious seeker is one who has no future. So if you always thought having no future was a bad thing, you can redraw your map a little bit. But uh, even though one might uh, take that on, uh, take that to be the case, and realize uh, what that's pointing to, um, the days and nights are relentlessly passing, and um, today is Friday, in case you hadn't noticed. (laughs) Those of you who watch the moon have noticed it's getting larger. Uh, Today is Friday, and so uh, there's... uh, a week has gone by, and uh, time is an int- is a is an interestingly elastic commodity. And uh, I remember one time uh, uh, a monk who had been uh, who was ordained a Western monk who was ordained in Thailand came and uh, stayed in England. The monasteries there he was there for about three years, I think, altogether. And uh, when we were seeing him off as he was um, going back to Thailand, we were sitting in the in the restaurant, kind of cafe section at Heathrow Airport in London. And so I said, "So, um, so venerable, what was your your impressions of your time in England then?" And he looked, gazed up into space for a moment, and then said, "It was an eternity that went by in a flash." <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was very astute. <laughs> so it's uh, I always find retreats are very similar. That uh, you're in this timeless zone, and yet it flies by. That one sitting, one inhalation, <laughs> can seem to take a week, and and yet the week is gone in three seconds. But uh, the time is passing, and uh, so the uh, the time when we will disperse this particular organism that's gathered together during this time um, that we have become, that we have uh, comprised, is uh, is going to separate, disappear, dissolve. All its these little cells will go in their separate directions. Some down south, back to San Diego, others up to Alaska. So yes, indeed, we have Alaskans, San Diegans, uh, and uh, even those from across the Great Water. So uh, there'll be some serious uh, dispersal going on. So uh, the question that is always uh, on people's minds, even though you might have done 15 or 20 retreats. Um, still, the, the, you know, the question gets asked, um, so how do, how do we carry this on? How do you sustain some kind of uh, level of practice uh, outside of the retreat situation? Um, and I think it's particularly strong because um, 
the kind of vipassana world, quote unquote, in uh, in this country is very much a retreat culture. It's not a community culture. So the practice is very much built around around uh, doing retreats and then s- uh, separating off and, and going our separate ways. Maybe having like local sitting groups, but it's not a a, a um, it's not a culture where we all live in the same village together. We don't we don't kind of live in the same place in the same monastery or commune. Um, and so that the 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 structure of the the teachings and the training is very much built around these uh, sudden intense bursts, <laughs> and then these uh, long droughts, rather like the uh, the kind of rainfall in the Atacama Desert. <laughs> You know, where every ten years you get a sprinkle and suddenly there's this flash of incredible color as everything gets born and flowers and then doesn't rain for ten years. (laughs) (laughs) So it can feel like that. Um, And so it's a a reasonable question to ask, how do we sustain the practice outside of a retreat? But I think it's also helpful, and I think one of the reasons of why Spirit Rock wants to, you know, has invited us to come and do this retreat here, and what we aim to do um, as a monastery and as a monastic community is to help broaden the scope of what the spiritual training is. I mean, obviously, local sitting groups are very important and uh, are very much a, a um, can bring a very much of a, a sort of a community, a communal aspect or, or um, uh, strengthening of the practice. But um, it's also helpful to uh, uh, consider, um, and, and what what the monastic tradition is uh, and these kind of practices are trying to do is is to uh, outline and, and encourage different aspects of the training that are available to us. You know, whether you're on retreat or off retreat, which are um, very significant and can greatly support our spiritual our spiritual life and and our, our efforts in. What we're doing, you know, what we gathered, what we've gathered here to do for this for this week. Uh, there are many different ways and means um, that uh, we can cultivate. So, um, reflecting on this this question, um, in a way, there's this kind of, there's two different aspects to it. When when you're outside of a retreat situation and, and all you've got is your your that local sitting group or or um, family life, I mean I know there's one or two people here where you know the local sitting group is is like you know three other people within a within a 400 mile radius. <laughs> that's that's local. <laughs> so some people are kind of out there and uh, and not having not with a great deal of support. But I, th- I think the two different angles to approach, um, regardless of, of how well-supported or poorly supported we might be, is um, one, the first angle is that of what, uh, what are the areas where the, the, the confusion gets caused and the, the energy gets burned, where the trouble gets made. And then the other angle is... Um, what do you do about it? <laughs> um, things that you can do. So, the um, 
I always find it is helpful uh, to um, really consider the, the kind of hot and turbulent areas of our life where, where the difficulty and trouble and struggle gets made because it's like if you're, if you're going through life and you're knocking holes in your boat and then you're, you're spending your time knocking holes in your boat and then plugging the holes up, it's kind of a difficult way to get across the, to get across the great water. <laughs> so that if there's, well, what I mean is that there's, there's oftentimes we're actually creating trouble for ourselves and then spending a lot of energy patching up the trouble we just caused. Um, and we're obviously unconscious of the fact that we're doing this. It just seems to be, you know, what you do. <laughs> just knock holes in the boat and then fill them up again. And just hope that you don't sink in the meantime. <laughs> so, the, uh, the areas where the trouble gets caused, um, there's a few of these. Um, and uh, you can kind of broadly divide them. Kind of, it's kind of in a, on a pattern of the Eightfold Path, really, uh, in terms of, of attitude, firstly, and then secondly, in terms of um, uh, action, work, uh, decision-making, kind of thing. And then thirdly, um, the um, tender subject, Sister Tanasanti, so... Um, uh, astutely brought up last night of uh, relationships, the way that we function with other human beings, and not just like romantic uh, partnership type relationships, but but um, the way that we function with other human beings. You might have noticed that um, probably 90% plus of our difficulties in life revolve around the other humans. <laughs> And probably nine of the other ten percent revolve around this human. <laughs> the remaining one percent is kind of a, is negotiable. <laughs> but um, so these are, uh, are areas where we um, where most of the the heat and, and agitation and confusion gets stirred up, where most of our energy gets burned. So. Um, and also, I'm not going to try and go through the, all this exhaustively this evening, otherwise we'd be here till tomorrow. And I'm sure you're getting the sense that I'm capable of <laughs> going on all night if I put my mind to it. Or if I stop putting my mind to it. Um, so uh, be, be, uh, be reassured. I will do my best. Um, but I thought just to kind of outline these particular areas. Um, so in terms of attitude... Where, um, like, t- like we would say, right view, right in, um, samaditi, samasankapa, right attitude, uh, right, right view, right thought, right intention. This is really like the basic sort of philosophical framework that we, we bring to our, our, our life and our action and what's going on. Um, and we burn a lot of energy uh, around the way that we deal with, with, uh, or the way we relate to dukkha, dis- discontent, dissatisfaction, alienation. And so a thing that's come up in a few of the, uh, of the conversations I've had with, with folks is that really, and, and also we've, we've addressed this quite a few times during the retreat, but realizing there are two brands of dukkha. There is not one, there is two. Well, there's more than two, but basically two divisions. And to have a little Pali lesson, there's sabhava dukkha, 
which means, sabhava means um, truly born, or the, the real um, uh, natural, or naturally born dukkha. And this is a dukkha of having pain in your legs, uh, a sore back, um, grief for uh, losing, uh, being separated from someone that you love. Um, the uh, natural, inescapable um, psychological or physical pain that comes with having been born. You have a body, you have a mind, therefore along with happiness, which is called sukha, then there's dukkha. And of course in between the two you have adukama sukha, <laughs> which is neither, neither dukkha nor sukha. <laughs> Neutral feeling. So uh, I'll have a little Pali fest this evening. Um, so sabhava dukkha, even, like even a, a totally enlightened being like the Buddha, um, and p- this is you know, particularly within Theravada, by the time you get into the Mahayana, Vajrayana teachings, the Buddha is kind of mythologized and, and deified out of, kind of pretty much out of the physical realm altogether. But within the Pali tradition, the Theravada world, the Buddha had backache, he had um, headaches, uh, he got ill, um, and died of food poisoning. So, um, and it's very clear that this was, these were, uh, were um, not just kind of one or two incidents, but, but numerous places. So that there's, uh, and, but the, the fact is that the, if we take the Buddha as a spiritual archetype in this instance, the Buddha could experience painful, racking feelings due to you know, some infection or some, <coughs> some illness, um, but yet be totally at peace with that. Be uh, absolutely okay with the fact that the body is experiencing great pain. When he was an old man, he had uh, a lot of back pain. And there's this beautiful, um, kind of poignant incident of him described sitting on the veranda of his, of his cabin, his little kuti, um, warming his back in the evening sun, and Ananda comes along and says, "You know, says, you know, venerable sir, what are you doing?" He says, oh, "I'm, I'm uh, easing my back, Ananda. Just getting some warmth in there, just to kind of soothe the pain." And, and Ananda says, "It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's marvelous. You, you, you used to be so, so handsome and young and strong, and your skin used to be so kind of bright and clear, and and now it's kind of all wrinkled and flaccid, and your body's full of pain." And, and then the Buddha says, yes, so it is, Ananda, so it is. Yeah, this body is a, is a prey to sickness and aging just like everybody else's. And, um, and it's said that uh, at the end of his life, he, he said the only way he could actually feel physical comfort was to absorb his mind into emptiness completely. Like the only, any, any cognition of the body um, involved the feelings of pain. So, you know, if you're, if you're moaning about your knees, you know, you're in good company. The, <laughs> the master himself had this same problem. But that kind of dukkha uh, is, we can be, it can be there, but we can be completely at peace with it. And then the other kind of dukkha, which is called viparinama dukkha, is adventitious or additional dukkha, that which we add on. The moaning, complaining, worrying, fretting, um, blaming, um, all of that that clusters around uh, a painful feeling. Again, psychological or physical. It shouldn't be here, whose fault is this, who can I sue? 
Should I sue Spirit Rock for my knee damage? <laughs> it's going to cost me a fortune in physiotherapy bills. I mean, someone's going to have to pay for this. <laughs> yeah. I wanted peace and happiness. I didn't... You know, so that this is called Viparinama Dukkha. Adventitious, additional, extra Dukkha. So that the, the Buddha's teaching and the teachings about, about transcending Dukkha is completely about the second... Uh, I mean, you, th- you might think, well, I want the whole lot, thank you. <laughs> but the first is non-negotiable. And, is, and, and as we practice, you can see that <coughs> nothing has gone wrong that you're feeling physical pain or that you're feeling you know, p- um, grief for the loss of someone that you love or um, embarrassment about some stupid thing that you said or did. <coughs> I mean, during the sitting this evening, I just remember that today's my mother's birthday. Oops. And it's already six o'clock in the morning in England, five o'clock in the morning in England of tomorrow. Oh well, <laughs> I just have to make the phone call tomorrow. But that's painful. Suddenly I realize, oh, I forgot my mother's birthday. <coughs> so this is, uh, but then what I do with that is entirely up to me. So that, that there's recognizing, and this is a very, very crucial tool to carry around with you in your life, because if one, as we can distinguish these two kinds of dukkha, as we kind of, we, we, um, we collide with people, we get, um, we miss planes, we get um, frustrated by this, we get um, hurt by that, to be really clear about, okay, well, I'm, you know, I missed this appointment, someone's going to be, someone's going to be upset. Okay, this is painful, but I don't have to carry this around and make a big deal out of it. It's, it's up to me what I make of it. Aha. Uh-huh. So that we're, we're really clear about what is inescapable and what is, uh, what is escapable, what we can let go of. And just really having that to hand, really examining and reflecting upon what we're doing with the experiences of, of, of life. And this will save you a tremendous amount of struggle and grief that when we, when we recognize that, sim- that there are some kinds of pain that just are inescapable, and with that quality of acceptance that we've been going on and on about uh, during this week, then you find that the pain is still there, but it's absolutely okay. There's nothing wrong with life at that moment. It's just an unpleasant feeling. It's just, this is what what failure feels like. This is what loss feels like. This is what... Um, a chronic illness feels like. We're not saying we like it, we're not sugaring it over. We're just saying, aha, this is what it is. I have a body, I have a mind, I'm capable of experiencing this. Aha. Now, another element uh, that's come up with a a few people um, that is another major energy sink is the why me black hole. <laughs> Why me? Um, why should I have to experience this? This isn't fair. You know, I've been a good person, I tried hard, you know, I did all the right things, and now this lands on me. You know, I, I was trying to be honest and good and then people cheat on me. Or, um, you know, was it something I did in a past life? Uh, that life is, not, life is being cruel to me. You know, why did I get the sack? Why did so-and-so walk out on me? Why did, um, why did my health fail? I've been, 
All these years I've been following this wonderful diet and avoiding all these, these kind of nasty, poisonous foods. Now, you know, I'm the one who gets, gets cancer. You know, and my this, you know, friend of mine is kind of smoking and boozing and chucking down all kinds of delicious stuff that I'm missing. <laughs> They're kind of fit as a fiddle. Not fair. So uh, this is by the, you know, I think by the general response is, is a familiar feeling that uh, we all can experience. But it's, uh, and I think again with the reflections that we've been doing, this is, these are really useful tools to have in hand. And the reflections on, I am of the nature to age, I have not gone beyond aging, I am of the nature to sicken. So that Buddha's, the Buddha's teaching is not a consoling religion. It's not a kind of Jehovah's Witness paradise where the, the, the lamb is, is suckling on the mother lion and the, the, uh, the bear is eating blackberries at the same bush as, the, uh, as, uh, as Pollyanna. Yeah. <laughs> Not on this planet. <laughs> Here, the, the lions eat the lambs. <laughs> and if Pollyanna gets too close, she gets whacked around the head by the bear. <laughs> so... so uh, you know, you're, you're, you're really preparing yourself for life. Like the, the, as far as the, the Buddha's teaching is, is concerned, say so because we're born, we should be ready for anything. You know, we're born, we have a body, we have a mind, anything can happen. And so that we... Um, you know, I think that the, the why me model is based on the kind of... The, pre, the, the, the nebulous presence of the Judeo-Christian benevolent Father God who's created the universe for a, as, a, as a, a happy little garden for us to, to play in. And it's, so the reason why we suffer because of this is like something terrible has gone wrong. These people hurt me. This, you know, this person did me wrong. This life isn't fair. You know, I tried really hard. I didn't get the prize. You know, I didn't, you know, nobody loves me. I got rejected. Huh? That's not fair. You know, why are these... Why do these flowers fade and rot? You know, why is my why is my body getting all kind of clunky and wrinkled and painful? And this isn't fair. This shouldn't be happening. How come I have this this ailment? How come you know my strength is going, my sight's going? You know, why did you know my partner have to die? You know, why did you know why is you know my my mother having to suffer so much kind of in her old age and and uh, it's not fair. Because, but you realize when you actually look at it, the, the, the model that we're holding up is that all of us, having been born, have a, a perfect right to be completely happy, to be loved constantly <laughs> by everyone that we meet, to be respected, <laughs> to have good food regularly, <laughs> to have a healthy body that doesn't feel pain, to have... Um, you know, rain uh, um, only at night when we're indoors. <laughs> and, you know, all picnics are to be, uh, to be sunny, but not too hot. <laughs> Just enough cloud to kind of muffle the, uh, the, the heat. And the, you know, the bugs should bite 
some species of being that doesn't feel pain, <laughs> but not me. And that, uh, like uh, Ajahn Sumedha used to have this reflection in Thailand, he said, if God really loved us, he wouldn't have created mosquitoes. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's kind of absurd, really, what we, we're, the picture that we, we're, we're creating. So to, um, to step back from that and say, to recognize um, how karma works, or to reflect on how karma works, and that uh, the, the attitude that we, we have to life, in, 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 most skillfully, is that um, we're born, we have a body, we have a mind, get ready for anything. Life is totally fair, but it doesn't follow our preferences as, as human beings. The, the humans are not special in the way of nature. Uh, we're, we're just as, uh, as uh, um, accessible to you know, heat and cold and aging and, and uh, happiness and unhappiness, youth and aging and uh, birth and death, like everything else. So I find it very helpful to just, just look at the natural world around us, the way animals, the birds, and the insects function. You know, you don't meet a lot of old, wild animals. They get eaten. <laughs> you know, you don't see any kind of retired sparrows walking. <laughs> you know, feathers getting a bit tatty, falling out. You know, or a little kind of Wheelchairs for sparrows, you know, just kind of scooting along with their wings on the on the ground, you know. No have, you know, the, such things don't don't exist. You know, they get eaten, they freeze, you know, they starve. It's this is it's a it's a rough life. So, um, you know, the like a, in the in the interview room, there's this vase of flowers with this. Um, incredibly schmaltzy picture of a guardian angel with a kind of big star on her forehead and, a, and this sort of ta- holding up this uh, in her, her hand these two little kitties at her feet and this even more schmaltzy verse on the back but uh, I think as a, as a sort of um, if you want an emblem for um, <laughs> for the um, uh, the spiritual presence of uh, in in the natural world, I go more for Mother Kali than uh, than the Virgin Mary, <laughs> because that recognition that you know, nature is brutal, you know that that uh, the big fishes eat the little fishes, and the little fishes have to be numerous and fast. That's the, that's the way life is. So it's like really opening ourselves to that, recognizing that that um, that. Because we're born, anything can happen to us. That life is completely fair. You know, why should why should I be the one that doesn't get ill and somebody else should? Why should um, you know? Why shouldn't any of my children die young? Where where does it say that? You know, that people die young. Why is that somebody else? Why why should it be that when I'm going places, there shouldn't be traffic? And this is one thing I love to point out. Have you ever been traffic? Anyone here has ever been traffic? Put your hand up. 
No, we're never traffic, are we? They are traffic. I'm going somewhere, and they are in my way. It's amazing, isn't it? We just don't think that way. And so, uh, just to, to recognize that it's not like there's traffic in your way. It's just like, ah, here we are, 101, Santa Rosa. This is what you do, sit still. <laughs> San Rafael on a Saturday evening, park on the hillside. <laughs> with the other, you know, 4,000 people on 101. <coughs> so to, to really bring this into our heart, this is why we have these kind of daily recollections. You might think, well, this is a pretty grim sort of thing to be thinking about every day. But this is why. It's because um, when we ready ourselves for it, if we, if we, then when it happens, when things come, then we're ready for it. We're, we're prepared. We don't, there's not that feeling of something terrible has gone wrong because... Um, you know, someone close to me has died, or my, my health is failing, or, or I got slung out of my job, or my car's broken down. The other, the other day, um, when I was coming down here, the, um, the wheel came off our van. Just before it went on the golden... I wasn't in the van at the time, it was one of the novices and two other monks. The wheel, not the tire, the wheel came off our van, just before they went on the Golden Gate Bridge which is a hairy moment for some hairless beings. <laughs> so, you know, you could, you, could, you could kind of cast blame around, but you also realize, well, you know, that uh, somebody had, had uh, very kindly, someone living in the monastery had very kindly um, uh, replaced the brake shoes and it was a, had been a professional mechanic and, and something just didn't go quite right, so... That's the way it goes. You, 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 you can um, cast blame or you can get angry or upset or, or, or um, anxious, but also you can see, well, that's just, you know, sometimes we miss our shot. Fortunately, no one was hurt and everything was worked out fine. But, um, you know, it's, it's recognizing that, you know, life is not under our control and it's not pretty a lot of the time. It's not structured. The universe is not structured for my constant happiness. And that's not unfortunate. <laughs> okay, that's just, this is how life is. So the more that we really acknowledge that, then the more prepared we are for when things go wrong. And then when things go right, when, when we meet with, with good fortune and success and praise and, and sweetness, then you know, it's a total bonus. We don't think, you know, hmm, well, what about a bit more then? <laughs> You know, we're not we're 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 able to enjoy the good stuff that comes without being fussy about it. Well, one of the, the teachings on this that I find very useful that you can you can also take with you is that sometimes people think, and particularly in, in Asia, that, that the things that we experience, the stuff that happens to us is like the results of actions in a past life. Or it must have been something I did in a past life that makes this happen to me. But um, the Buddha talked about seven different levels of karma. There's the immediate result of personal action, so that, um, like, I'm choosing these words to say, so you're, and you're hearing them, so this is the immediate result of action that I'm taking. Then there's the, the, um, the result of action taken in the past, like, um, I uh, um, was invited to t- teach a retreat at Spirit Rock, and you all saw the adverts, and so you signed up, so in the, the kind of near past, and then there's the 
result of personal action in the remote past, which would be like from past life experiences. Maybe we were all, we were the ones who were sitting in the back of the assembly chatting while the Buddha was teaching in the deer park and, or in the, at, uh, in the Jetavana and Savati. So we didn't get it that time. So we <laughs> kind of got this vague association with Buddha Dharma, but uh, it took us two and a half thousand years to kind of really <laughs> get in the groove. Um, so here we all are again, you know, clustered in this, this place. Um, but the, so only the first three levels are anything to do with personal action. And the fourth level is, is family karma. So that just by being born into a particular family, you are involved in the, the, the karmic um, patterns of the other members of the family that you're in. Then the next one is national karma, the very fact that you just happen to be born in this country that you have that particular nationality, so that if there's a, a, fa- you know, a plague that goes through, the, through that country, just because you're there, then you are an inheritor of that karma. Or if the country goes to war, then you're a part of that because of, of um, being born there. And then the, the sixth one is just karma of being a human being, just the species that you belong to. You know, the, the we, as a human being, we have you know the mind of an animal, the, the, <laughs> the mind of a the mind of a god, and the body of an animal. And so this is a very strange situation to be in. <laughs> but that's the human predicament. That's the human situation: is that we have an animal body and a, a mind that's capable of of, uh, of unconditional love, of of transcendent wisdom, of uh, of compassion for for other species which most, most creatures are not capable of. But we can have compassion for, for insects and, and frogs and trees, which you know, very few other species can have, have any kind of, apparently, any feeling for others other than their own species. So being born as a human brings a whole karmic web with it. And then the, the, the seventh kind is just the fact that we're a living being at all, of any kind. The very fact that we have a, a, an apparent independent existence, we are a being of some kind, involves us in the, the karma of, of beings that we experience, forms of birth and death, of, of uh, gain and loss and so forth. So that all of these different seven levels are, are, are kind of interweaving and intermingled and, and functioning at any one moment. That what we experience now is the confluence of... of uh, those seven streams, and you can also you, know, you can divide it up much more precisely, but uh, it's roughly, you know, broadly ba- broadly sliced, seven different levels. So that when we're trying to, to um, when we're dealing with the events of our life, rather than getting caught up into the uh, burning a lot of juice on you know why me or this isn't fair or this shouldn't be this way. You know, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. <laughs> you know, you can trust that there's just various different um, causes and conditions that have create the, the fabric of this moment like this, some of which are the results of your actions, some not. And also the Buddha, this is another helpful piece of advice, the Buddha said, if you try to figure out all the workings of karma, you'll either go crazy or your head will explode. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, actually, precisely, says it'll break into seven pieces. <laughs> not six, not eight, seven. So that you're... It's not a matter of trying to figure out where, where it all comes from. 
but just recognizing that some of it, some of the causes of why we feel and experience what we do are going to be visible, some are going to be mysterious and unknown. So then in the, in the, the realm of, um, of action, the, um, one of the things that, that around a retreat that is um, very different from ordinary life is that there's, a very, there's minimal decision-making um, beyond um, how many almonds for breakfast. <laughs> Do I take an, an extra piece of, of a sweet potato or whatever? Um, there's not a lot of decision-making that goes on. Or, or how many cushions under my right knee? <laughs> <laughs> or where shall I move to in the room today? Um, so that uh, decision-making and that kind of conscious choice is minimized. But in the, in the other world, in the more expanded world, we're faced with a lot of, of action and choices and decisions. And so it can seem as though that's another world. It can seem as though that's, that's far from the, the practice. Uh, and that it's a kind of, having to, to make decisions is a sort of an intrusion upon our peace of mind. It's a, kind of a departure from, um, from choiceless awareness or, or um, that kind of, undifferentiated consciousness. Like, you, know, you have to go into this, this world and make these decisions and then you have to be responsible for them. Um, well, it, it looks... It, even though we might be able to see the selflessness of, of a, a, say, a sound that we hear, that's not me or mine, okay, then maybe we can see that a feeling in the body is not really me or mine. It's trickier to see that a memory is not really me or mine, an idea, a kind of personal memory but maybe we can get to see that. But a decision, certainly, you know, inarguably seems to be, you know, there is someone who is deciding. But, but even in this, to, to recognize that decisions can be, we can make decisions without there being any sense of self involved at all. That actually, that's really just the appearance of things. And that when you look at, at volition, at decision making, what's happening is that the mind is confronted with a, a set of of possibilities, and there's um, the, the situation is one of a, of a need to take action, so that the, the mind scans the possibilities, you know, perceives what's going on, and then by using uh, memory and the memory of past experience, and then using our intuitive wisdom, then with then drawing upon that wisdom, then there's the reflection. Well, which is the best choice? Which is uh, the best way to go? And then a, a certain choice arises, and, or, or the, the mind picks on a particular option and says, okay, let's try this. So that on the out, from the outside, it looks as though I am deciding to go through this door or to, to do this kind of work. But internally, if you really look, all there's been has, has been perception, uh, reflection, uh, w- uh, intention, uh, wisdom, operating and an action taking place and there's no need for any self involved in that at all now what happens as we we work with decision making in this way is that we we take a lot of the sting out of it because when we make a decision you notice that feeling of like i've got to be right and i'm afraid of being wrong 
this familiar? I don't want to make a mistake. And, uh, and so that uh, the more we load the decision with the feeling of I, the more painful it is. Um, painful both if it succeeds or if it goes wrong. Or it, it's painful when we succeed because it's like, oh, hooray, I got, I got it right, you know, success, this is marvellous. And then we get a great big charge out of that. But when the next, pos- the next opportunity for a decision arises, then we're, the karmic result of that delighting in the success is then the fear that we're not going to get it right the next time. It's like, oh no, I've got to do it again. <laughs> oh dear, another one. And then it's, and if it doesn't work, then it's, it's painful right there and then. So what we're doing is, is learning to let action flow from that place of, of reflection and wisdom without the kind of ego-based invas- investment in it. So that there's, um, when a set of choices arises, then there's a, the recognition of, like, of say, okay, well, let's choose this one, see where it goes. And then, and then if it works well, then you, you recognize, oh, that's good, this seems like a good path, okay, we'll keep trying this. You don't sort of rejoice and get drunk on it. And similarly, if it, if it, you know, it, it runs into a, a dead end, then you realize, oh, bad choice, okay, try something else. There's an easefulness and a, and a spaciousness around that. And this is not kind of airy-fairy ideas, this is, this is a very, very practical, um, doable and takes a tremendous amount of the, of the agitation and anxiety out of our living process. That you're, you're just working with the, the, the possibilities and options of your life um, with this, this openness and sensitivity, your, a readiness to adapt. Like, okay, well that didn't work, rather than, oh God, I got it wrong, what are they going to think of me? Oh no, I'm never going to live this down. It's like, you just took a wrong turn, that's all. <laughs> you know, okay, just take another turning, see where that goes. And, you know, uh, for myself, I think also like Sister Tana Sandhya, I was very heavily conditioned against failure in life. And, and after, even after years of practice, I find that, that you know, I could still get really uh, disturbed by, by making some wrong decision. A you know, decision that went to a kind of a painful or, or kind of pointless or non-functioning place. <laughs> But the more, but I found that the more that you're just determined to, to just not identify with that, with that, leave it alone, and just let actions be guided by wisdom, unselfishness, compassion, and not claiming ownership of that, then the the whole um, emotional quality of of uh, decision making is radically altered. It just changes it completely. I mean, it, it's like, I, 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 when I found I started to be able to do this, it was just, I kind of look at myself and say, did I just say that was okay? <laughs> I just blew it completely and that's all right? Wow. What happened there? Also, in, um, in the world of action, then... Um, some of the, the themes we've been talking about, uh, like with the walking meditation and learning how to walk without going anywhere. This is uh, another, you might think this is completely impractical because you've got places to go and things to do. I mean, real places to go, <laughs> real things that have to be done. Um, and yes, this is, this is the appearance of things. 
But uh, as I said a few times during the retreat, this is a really, really useful skill to develop. That we can be going, you know, that physically the body can be moving places and sitting in a car and, and traveling. And, but yet you're, you recognize you're not going anywhere. And essentially what this is, is like it's, you're holding the whole world in your mind. You're recognizing the world happens in your mind. It all happens here. And in a way, this is what we mean by cessation, niroda. The word niroda in Pali doesn't just mean something coming to an end. It also means holding or checking. It comes from the um, the, the the root uh, uh, the part the root of the Pali word is rud, which means like to hold or to check, like holding the reins of a horse. So, holding the world, right, recognizing that the whole world happens within the mind. All movement happens within the stillness of the mind. Even when you're zooming down the freeway or you're kind of striding purposefully through the through the schoolroom, um, running for the bus. You know, you can run for the bus and not go anywhere. You know, the, the body can be moving at speed, but you can recognize all of this is just happening within the stillness of the mind, in your mind. It always happens here. So it's really just a matter of like, oh, right, checking in. And then the, the more we practice with that, the more that becomes an abiding uh, recognition, so that you just need to keep you know, dropping in these reminders, and then, oh right, and the heart softens and and reorients itself. That yeah, there's nowhere to go. I'm here. <laughs> Life is happening here. So there's there's movement, there's action taking place, but it's it's held in this this space of of stillness. Uh, to um, then to, to speak uh, about because um, you know the the the, uh, the world of action is is where you know where a place where we and uh, movement is a place where we get turbulent and caught up, but relationships is uh, an even denser thicket. As I, uh, I was saying before, you know that when you, if you just scan the amount of of what we what we spend our time thinking about. It's people, isn't it? I mean, vast majority of, of what we think about is is to do with the people that we live with and share our lives with. And this is not just our, our partners, our marriage partners, uh, or like in the monastery, kind of the people that you live with in community. This is like people that you work with, your parents, your children, your friends, your enemies, people that you love, people that you hate, people whose lives affect you, the government and the, the officials and so forth. That... We live in relationship with a vast quantity of people. And so that to, to bring attention to how relationships function, how we, re- how we relate to others, and how certain ways of relating will cause constant turbulence and alienation and struggle and, and difficulty, and other ways of relating will lead to to peacefulness, to joy, to spaciousness. Uh, one way that I like to to frame the whole area is, um, regardless of whether it's a parent-child, teacher-student, um, lover and lover, or colleagues and, co- and bosses and workers, or whatever it might be, um, 
is that to, to not pay so much attention to the social context of it, but more to um, how it's being held within our attitude. Which is to say, broadly speaking, there's, there's two kinds of relationship. What, I can, what you can call a, a relationship of separateness and a relationship of wholeness. So a relationship of, of separateness is where um, you fill a space in my life and that uh, I, I have a piece missing and you are a thing that fills it. You, are, you have a space in my life. And, with, and, and so that the, the feeling is that uh, I am this separate individual entity here and you are that distinct entity over there and whether I love you or hate you or we have um, uh, you're my boss or, or I'm your child or, or we're uh, in a partnership together whatever it might be as long as there's that fixed kind of concrete sense of I and you then it's never going to work no matter how hard we try no matter how much we put into it no matter how many thousands of dollars we spend on therapy <laughs> and uh, I know there's a, quite a gang of therapists in the room mm-hmm. ex-therapists you, in, as long as that is as long as that sense of, of I and you is fixed then it's never going to quite work out it might work out for short periods of time but but that intrinsic in that individuality is um, alienation is this dislocation? It, it can't be any other way. And so that uh, no matter how hard we try to work out our relationships with our parents, our children, and bosses, and friends, and so forth, there's there'll always be that shadow. Either that the um, the, the feeling of not really reaching another, or not really being connected with another, not really knowing them, not really being known by them, not really being understood, not really being able to understand. Or also, just in the level of having the most kind of wonderful, totally close and beautiful bond with each other. But then when that breaks, through loss or through geographical separation or through death, then the peace is missing. There's a... a um, a beautiful old uh, couple who lived near our monastery in, in Sussex, in England, Chithurst Monastery. And they'd been married for 60 years, Mr. and Mrs. Gilbert. And they were it was a really sweet old couple. They used to walk around the village, kind of tottering around on their walking sticks, hand in hand, you know, walking stick in each hand and each other in the other hand. And they had, they'd been married for 60 years and they had not had one argument. Pause to replace jaw. <laughs> Not one argument in 60 years. So when, when uh, Mrs. Gilbert died, um, the, her husband was, was totally distraught and just really incredibly grief-stricken. And he went to the doctor uh, and, uh, and begged the doctor for some kind of pills that would, would make him feel okay or something to help him. And the... And the, and the um, the doctor said, I'm not going to give you anything. He was quite blunt with him. He said, I'm not going to give you anything. You know, and he said, oh. He said, well, 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 why not? He said, well, you know what the problem is, don't you? He said, no. He said, your marriage was too good. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> you know, that you, what you're experiencing is is uh, the result of, of having this kind of totally happy marriage, and that now it's like losing an arm and a leg. You know, you, you're feeling the pain of that loss. So that, uh, and it was bl- it was blunt advice, but it was, it was very skillful from the doctor because. It was like recognizing that this is this is a natural result of that bond. So this is what I mean by, even though that that it can be extremely pleasant and bright, until unless we really understand a relationship in the in a tr- right way, then there's there's going to be pain inherent in it. So a relationship of wholeness means that the way that we relate with others is not around the sense of self. And that we we recognize that 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 uh, the judgments and evaluations we make about this being here and about other and other beings out there these are only um, partial truths they're relative truths they can't be absolute and so that the presence that we, the contact that we have with others the friendship and the the uh, the, the um, uh, intimate relationships or the parent-child relationships or whatever that we have with others, that, that that contact helps us to remember our own wholeness. It helps us to realize our own wholeness. But there's a, it, the, the, the way that we are is based on a, 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 at least an intuitive recognition of our wholeness that it exists already. Nothing is missing in what we are. And so that um, in that way, we are, are recognizing this person as, you know, my parent or my friend or my partner or my boss or my, you know, or my student. But you're also recognizing that's only part of the story. There's more to them than that. You know, that, there's, that they're not just my parent. They're not just my friend. That there's, there's a dimension of their being which is beyond my projections and perceptions. And that when we can recognize that which is beyond the superficial characteristics in ourselves and in others, then, uh, it's, which is interesting, it's like the more that we let go of ourselves, the more we let go of others, the more completely we are attuned to each other. The more you forget yourself, the more completely you are yourself. And the more that you, you let go of others, that you, you don't create others, then the more at one you are with everyone. The more independent you are, the more completely uh, free of neediness that you are, the more completely at one you find yourself to be with others. There's a strange irony, but this, this is the way that it works. I remember once, years ago, Ajahn Sumedho talking about this, and one of the nuns who had a particularly fraught relationship with her, her family, she still... I believe, has to wear a, a woolen, woolen hat when she goes to visit. Yeah? Yeah, she still does. She's been a nun for like 15 years? 18 years? 18 years. They, weren't, they, they refused to see her shaven head. And so, uh, one t- she, asked, she asked Ajahn Sumedha this question, you know, what, do you, you know what, what can you do with your parents in such a situation? And he said, the, fi- the, the kindest thing that you can do to your parents is to not create them. Ah. <laughs> a, a deep silence descended upon the room. And that, none of us had really thought of that before, but it was the most helpful and profound comment, because that's true. That's the kindest thing we can do for each other, 
is not to create each other. Which means, you know, I don't create you as, as students, or you don't create us as, uh, me as a monk, or Sister Tanasanti as a nun, or being like this, or being like that. Certainly we, we acknowledge and receive and perceive the different qualities, but we don't, you don't create that kind of fixity of that's what she is, he is like this, she is like that. So that when we actually meet, I'm not meeting my projections about you as being a, 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 being a woman, being a man, being old, being young, being interested, being uninterested, being uh, you know, this, that or the other. But you, you're, you're letting everything be transparent so that then you can actually meet. As you know that experience of where you're, you're having a conversation with someone and they've got two monologues going. You know, you're talking to the, your projections of them and they're talking to their projections of you. <laughs> so that you have these two completely unrelated monologues being recited. And, then, and from the outside it looks like there's a conversation happening, but all you're doing is waiting for a gap in the flow of words so you can kind of chime in with, with the continuation of your monologue. <laughs> I mean, it's a kind of sweeping statement, but I think we're all familiar with that gruesome experience. So, uh, in terms of, of um, uncomplicating and clarifying our life, then this is, this is an amazingly um, potent area of like, normalizing our relationships. Just working, wherever you see yourself, like in meditation, your mind, or, or, or sort of sitting around doing things, your mind is going on and on about so-and-so. Oh, we wish you wouldn't do that. And Oh, it was really great when she did this. And oh, I wish I was like her. And, and he really shouldn't have done that. And when she did this, I was really upset. And all of those she's and he's and if and when. and Just every time it comes, it's like, you know, say, who? <laughs> you know, what are they? Don't create people. Leave them alone. Just leaving that, leaving them uncreated, leaving them alone, leaving the mind being spacious. Just seeing how much energy we burn creating other people and carrying them around. I mean, that's a lot of work. <laughs> we don't have to do that. You don't have to carry people around. And that as we begin to train ourselves in that, then how much more spacious our world becomes. And also, when you are functioning and working with other people, how much more fresh and alive the contact is, the way that we, we are able to be with each other. So I'm already over the hour, but there's a couple, <laughs> a couple more odds and ends. I've only got, I've, I've only got onto the, uh, I've only done, dealt with the don'ts, but. Uh, in terms of the do's, I think we also, we miss, we don't notice that along with a, on a retreat situation like this, we think, oh, meditation retreat. And that we, we tend to think that the benefit that we're receiving from a, a situation like this is mostly the formal practice. But actually, um, the, the benefits of, of uh, like, for this whole week, uh, everyone has been keeping the precepts. You haven't stolen anything. You haven't, nobody's lied to. You haven't lied to anyone. You haven't sworn at anyone that I know of. <laughs> and you haven't killed anything. So that the karmic effects of just careful behavior 
are one of the major elements of a retreat. We don't, at the end of a day, we don't have to remember the dumb things that we've done. This is a, a kind of radical. A pr- this is co- this is a radical approach to, to psychotherapy. If you want to feel good about yourself, don't do stupid things <laughs> that make you critical of yourself. I mean, it seems facile or superficial, but um, it's and it, it's not absurd. Uh, the reason why we we feel bad about ourselves is that we do a lot of stupid things and then we have to remember them. <laughs> now certainly you can, you can kind of get hold of that and, and turn that simple recognition of, oh that was stupid, or I wish I hadn't done that, or that wasn't true, which is, you know, in Buddhist terms is called sh- uh, moral shame. We can take hold of that and give it to the ego and then it runs off and capitalizes on it and turns it into a whole guilt trip, which is very injurious. But that, that feeling of, of, um, of uh, moral sensitivity, it's called Hiriyotapa. The Buddha said, this is the guardian of the world. This is what keeps us together as human beings. A sense of, of be- what is beautiful, what is ugly in our, in our behavior. So in terms of keeping a peaceful mind, um, taking the five precepts really seriously and using that as a, as a guide for our conduct, it really s- just saves so much grief, <laughs> so many headaches, to just not be doing things that we, we regret. It just leaves that much more space within the mind. Similarly, um, during a retreat, you might not be conscious of how much generosity you're practicing. So there's a, a strong, the, the power of sila is very great, power of generosity, keeping a routine giving your time and your energy to the meditation, following the routine, giving us a, being concerned for other people's welfare, whether you're, you're kind of making noises to irritate other people, or, or the way you move through the corridor, closing your door, kind of care and concern, the way you do your job, and preparing food for others, or tidying up. But there's a lot of giving that's been going on during this time. That just living in community brings that forth, that we give a lot, just to live harmoniously in community. So when we talk about dana, it's not just a matter of signing checks, but dana is actually the the giving of our time, our attention, our energy. And actually more important than just material goods, really giving our heart to the people around us, giving our attention. So when you're in conversation with someone, actually listening to them. <laughs> what a thought. <laughs> giving your attention, giving, really being there for others. And recognizing our, our relationship uh, as part of a whole web of, of life, of other beings. That, that generosity of spirit, the giving, giving of ourselves to the group laying aside what I want to do in order to do what the group wants to do, what's going to be for the benefit of everyone. That's a tremendously brightening effect. So that when we, when we give, when there's, when there's generosity, then we feel joy. Another of Ajahn Sumedho's favorite quotes is, happiness is, what hap- happiness is the result of getting what you want. Joy is the result of giving. And that, that when we are, when we are, we are 
on that most basic level, cutting through selfishness, the kind of me first program. We, we kind of cut through that and, and, and get to the other side. There's a moment of grief where we've given up my self-concern, like, oh, but I want it. <laughs> well, what about me? So there's, a, there's a, the kind of the grief curtain that we, we have to push through. Then on the other side, it's just so delicious, so beautiful. I remember when I was in Thailand, there was another novice uh, who uh, got a, a care package from home, from his family in France, and, and he was handing out all these candies. And I said, um, don't, you want to keep some, don't you want to keep some for yourself? And he said, they are much more delicious when you share them. <laughs> and it really stuck in my mind. That was 20 years ago. It's still, I remember it very distinctly. That thought had never occurred to me in my life. <laughs> it was like, maximize for me was the basic ethic that I worked on. And give, give what you're compelled to. But now, obviously, sustaining practice outside of a retreat, the... Uh, daily meditation is very useful, and so I'm sure most of you have kind of clued in on that one already. But I also just to briefly suggest what I call micro meditations, so that this is just like literally three second sittings, one breath. <laughs> now you might think I've got a really busy day, you know, I don't have time to stop. But I think if you have time to breathe, you have time to practice. So just at, at moments during the day, just when you enter a room, when you're going to get in your car, when you put down the phone, just one breath. Right, remember, where are you? Who are you? Ah. And it's right there. The recognition is right there. And it's just stopping and tuning into that. That reality will never desert you. The present, you, you cannot get so distracted that the present moment will give up on you. <laughs> right? No matter how lost you get, it'll always be there to come back to. And so there's kind of little micro-meditations of just stopping, being still. Even just like going to the bathroom. Like, no one's going to bother you there. You have complete license just to <sighs> breathe out, be alone. And that keeping that going during the day, just here and there, a few, you know, a couple of times an hour, every so often, then it keeps that recognition, that recollection, that everything that ha- is here is happening in a context of Dhamma. This is, this is Dhamma, nature arising, changing, passing away. Aha! And just that simple recognition is enough to keep us attuned, keep the heart awake. And the last thing that I wanted to mention is uh, the whole aspect of puja, vandana, or reverence, which is uh, um, an element that has been uh, we've been emphasizing in the morning and evening on this retreat. And maybe some of you have a bit of a feeling of how bowing and chanting works. So just in your own home, making a little shrine, 
and then having your kind of a Buddha image or your various pictures of spiritual heroes and heroines that you have. You know, who, and who, you know, there's no kind of particular rules that uh, that uh, uh, about the shrine. Usually, the Buddha's in the center, and then if you have you know, if your your kind of Ruth over here and Jack over there, and Dalai Lama kind of tacked on the corner. That's fine. Whatever order you like to have people, that's, that's there's no kind of ranking. Uh, and then just to have maybe some flowers and and uh, candles and. Usually candles, flowers, and incense are, the, are, are there. But having it in a prominent place in your home and having it in a place that you kind of you look after, you change the flowers, you keep it dusted, and it becomes the, that becomes the, the centerpiece of your home rather than the refrigerator or the, <laughs> or the, the TV. Which is the, you know, that becomes your half, is the shrine. And it's there, kind of, as you move around your home and... and and it keeps reminding you as you're sort of hurtling through the living room. It's like, oh, right. <laughs> and not like, you know, Big Brother's watching you, but the, uh, just that sense of, where am I going? What's the hurry? Uh-huh. And, and it's helping us to, to have a, a, a different centerpiece to our life other than kind of food or entertainment. Or just, or no center, you know, that we have a, a kind of featureless um, space, but just having that focal point is like a nucleus for our attention. So that, that saying, you know, remember, and then the, and the also the acts of, of devotion. Like for us, our training is first thing in the morning. As soon as you wake up, you bow to the shrine. Well, we always have a, ro- a shrine in our room. First thing you do, you bow to the shrine. Last thing at night, you bow to the shrine before you go to bed. Just those simple gestures of, of lay, you know, laying the head down on the floor and saying, there is something in this universe which is more significant than my ego. <laughs> you know, I place this, the self-concern geographically lower <laughs> than the principle of wisdom. And so that just those gestures have a tremendous power of, uh, of uh, carrying us into uh, the world of Dhamma, living in the world of Dhamma, so that we're, we're using all of these different ways and means to keep reminding ourselves of this most sim- crucially simple thing, that, that uh, when we wake up, when we're awake, we don't suffer, and when we're heedless, we do. And all of this, these different ways and means are simply trying to have trying to create a, a world and sustain a world which is unco- which is as uncomplicated as possible and which is as encouraging to wake up as possible so that that simple gesture of of wa- awakening and liberation can be made so i made it for 10 o'clock so that's an achievement hey <laughs> one Andamayang Varagata Sadu Karanga Damase Sadu Sadu